looks like I'm on. I think I'm on. Yeah, there I am. Pardon the chest. I'm not trying to look like Bernard-Henri Lévy, but it's very warm here in New York, so I wanted to stay frosty. I just took a shower. I'm clean, so I feel good. You guys can hear me? Someone says they can't hear me. Let me check this. Oh, yeah, you can hear me. I can hear me on my, my own computer. No more gaslighting. Thank you. Please don't tell me the audio is quiet. I literally have my thing on. I plug it in and I turn the volume up, but I have no third option. Ah, salsa and jalapenos. Delicious. Who doesn't love those things? Together? Are you kidding? It's a savory treat. Put that with some, uh, I don't know, flattened flour or cornmeal cooked into a circular type uh, configuration, marron, and then perhaps a protein, uh, maybe a, a piece of uh, pollo or asada, the carne variety, or perhaps uh, a uh, jicama piece. One way or another, you're going to have a good time. Perhaps some plantains. Yes, beans, always a classic. Fried once or even twice. Actually, it doesn't specify how many times it's been refried, right? This says refried beans. It could have been refried 50 times. Maybe they're better the more times you refry them. Maybe you have to pay more for beans that have been refried five times as opposed to ones that have just been refried the once. Sort of like the difference between olive oil and extra virgin olive oil. First pressing. And now I'm hearing that they're not even fried. Well, what the hell? Oh, I get it, because frijoles, that's a, people thought it was a cognate, and it's not. All right. That makes sense. English loves to do that. Uh, thinking of, speaking of foodstuffs, this is a good segue, because I wanted to talk about this, because it's still bothering me several days later. It was when Cuomo came out to talk about the stupid plan where... I honestly don't even know what the real parameters are because I haven't been out to a bar, but apparently it's, so they've expanded it so that you can have bars with outdoor seating, but they have to serve food. And the definition of food is what Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York in the middle of a unprecedented fucking pandemic and economic crisis, uh, in which his administration has helped directly lead to thousands of needless deaths and is in the process of overlooking just what's looking like it could be some sort of monstrous eviction crisis and housing crisis in the biggest city in the country. Uh, and instead he's saying a sandwich is the minimum amount of substantialness to count. And forget whether or not there's any rhyme or reason to this. I'm sure someone could sit you down and explain why. Well, this is to prevent binge drinking or whatever the hell. Uh, I don't even know what the justification is, but I'm sure that there's some quantish uh, 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 fucking Cass Sunstein social engineering reason that you should, uh, that they have to eat, have to have food. Uh, whatever it is, you could just put that out there, you know, and you could, you don't have to have the governor getting into this discussion. The governor doesn't have to go on TV to tell you chicken wings are not substantial enough, which by the way, I don't even know what we're even saying. I mean, the actual substance of the argument is beside the point and talking about it is, is what he wants you to do. But just as a quick aside, how is the distinction not 
prepared and heated or cold. What is, the, what is another more meaningful distinction? I don't understand. So if that's the case, why wouldn't sandwiches would be unsubstantial if they weren't heated? And certainly fucking chicken wings, which require a, 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 uh, a gigantic fryer to cook. How is that not? I mean, why anybody wants to go out right now, I don't understand either. I get getting cooped up, but like at this point you can have a few people over. Or sit outside your house with a few people, you know, and like simulate that. I don't think anyone's going to care. Uh, instead of drinking, if it's not, if they, if they frown on drinking in front of a home, just, uh, just do like a, a suppository or something like vodka soaked tampon up the keister and just hang out in front of your house. Wouldn't that be better than going to a bar with people wearing masks and shit and feeling all awkward and feeling guilty about exposing the staff, but also thinking like, well, they need me to be here. They wouldn't have a job. And then you're just caught in that, that maze of, uh, of neoliberal, like, uh, a moral crisis that pervades every interaction now and has only been made more acute by COVID. But anyway, whatever that reason may be, you're going to a bar. What difference does it make? But more importantly, why would the governor talk about this stuff? And I think it comes down to the creating an illusion of decisiveness and control over the situation. Because we talk a lot on the show, and I've talked a lot about how neoliberalism and specifically the administrators of neoliberalism thrive on uh, means testing of all programs. But of course, part of that is just the logic of austerity. It requires uh, life. It, it requires paring down at every level uh, the, to efficiency, the amount of money, money uh, being uh, spent by the government because the austerity is, is, is hostile to that. Social spending is anathema to it. Uh, and so it's got to it's got to be constrained, uh, and because it's anathema to it, because it's not profit, and it doesn't directly lead to uh, profit for capital. Of course, you know it creates the situation that allows for you to have an economy in the first place. But that's why capitalism will eventually death spiral because it cannot stop itself from doing that, it can, from undermining its own foundation. Uh, But part of it's that, but another part of it is that because so little is under the real control of governors and senators and presidents at the level of economics, uh, there has to be then at the level of social policy and economics a, a feigning of activity and arguing and, ha and, and haggling over the, 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 the form of means testing is like that. It's, it is the public policy version of yelling about what kind of food you can serve at the restaurants so that you can be open at night uh, and do t takeout or whatever the hell. I don't, still don't know what the fucking argument is about. Uh, but he, because so Ch Cuomo finds himself, like the rest of these yutzes, uh, totally at the mercy of events, of a, of a virus that it can't uh, anticipate or has the capacity or competence in, within its administration or infrastructural or social capacity to deal with it even if it could for any of this stuff. And so him hollering at you about what constitutes a fucking meal at a restaurant, that's him exercising executive authority. He can't do anything else, but he can tell you, you have to put some bacon on that BL, uh, you have to put some bacon on that club sandwich or it doesn't count as enough of a fucking meal to stay open. 
And the best part of it is, not only does it create the illusion then, it creates the parameters for a new discussion that people can have. Like I was just having about what the hell, why wouldn't it just be hot or cold? And, oh, what are you talking about? You gonna tell me that the, the wonderful buffalo wing is not, oh, oh, what are you saying to your constituents in Buffalo? I know that's not what people from Buffalo sound like, but whatever. And then you're arguing on the terms established as, as, as a genuinely conjured fake choice that he gets to publicly make. He gets to make a big choice that doesn't have to be made. It's total busy work. And that is 90% of what we see among our political leadership is arguing over the terrain of busy work. Like the, the, the whole stimulus thing right now and the, and the second round of, uh, of checks that they're getting ready to send out. A lot of people were freaking out like they're going to let this collapse. And I never thought that was going to happen. But I knew it was going to come, it was going to be negotiations and it was going to be a, lo a lower amount than last time. And part of that is because you've got to make sure people do not get used to this and do not think that this is automatic. They have to know that it's a political struggle. They have to know the terms of the debate. They have to know that there's going to have to be sacrifices. Uh, and of course, all the sacrifices are on the side of workers. None of it is on the side of any, anyone, theoretically, because it's all, it's all pitched as the fucking uh, budget-friendly, like... Uh, it's all pitched as being about, about fiscal probity, but that's complete bullshit. This is the exact same administration that, tries to tr that passed a trillion-dollar tax cut in its first year in office and has exploded deficits well beyond anything that uh, Obama did because Obama, like all Democrats, their job is to clean up after the fucking elephants shit all over the goddamn three-ring circus. And they've internalized it. Like, that's the thing. They actually believe that stuff. It's not even what the rubes have to think. It's their version of, of like, the, the, the self-deluded elements of, of right-wing ideology. I'm reading halfway through Reaganland, and Carter genuinely believed that the cause, the proximate, the single most proximate and important cause of inflation was government spending, specifically deficits. He thought that the budget deficits caused inflation. Now... The reason he thought that is because that was the economic, that was the closest thing there was to an economic consensus to emerge out of the crisis of Keynesianism that happened when the two things that are never supposed to ever coexist in Keynesian theory, uh, uh, economic uh, uh, slow growth and inflation, or negative growth and inflation, happened. And everyone lost their shit. And the closest, the only people in the room who had an answer were the fucking neoclassicals who said, oh, it's the money supply, fucking Milton Friedman. And we know for 100% of a fact now, 40 years of experience have told us that that, it, whatever it is, and it's still a question of debate, we know for fucking sure it's not that. They talk themselves into it. But anyway, that's only true of Democrats. Republicans, both at the level of power and at the level of voters, don't really give a shit about fucking deficits. $500 trillion for defense. Rebuilding the beautiful defense. We love it. The wall, whatever. Space Force. Oh, the Space Force, they're up there. Bing bong. It's just what they're spending the money on. Everyone knows this, except for the media and the Democrats, whose role requires them to keep the kayfabe up that this is a real concern. So this is all a fake argument just to meant to keep you conditioned to be like, yes, you're right. We have to be careful about the, oh, yes. Oh, no, the deficit. You're right. No, it should be less. You know, even though you have larded money onto the richest scumbags in this fucking country and given billions of dollars to, 
to uh, huge corporations, uh, many of which have just got done with a decade plus of splurging wildly on stock buybacks and dividends to customers to keep their fucking uh, uh, price high. And now they want more money than that and they're getting it without any fucking strings attached, basically. But these people have to feel like, yeah, yeah, no, you got to tighten your belt. But also, because now arguing for the Democrats and the Republicans both, arguing between these fake parameters, that constitutes a pseudo-controversy and a, a pseudo-debate that everyone can, can invest in when the reality is, yeah, they're going to keep shoveling money into this hole as long as it takes because we're the fucking reserve currency and uh, consumer of last resort and no one else is stepping up to the plate anytime soon to pay, take any of, either of those roles. Nobody wants them. Like, if China really wanted to be the world reserve currency, we could actually have, I think, maybe a war that people freak out about maybe happening. I mean, obviously, any escalation could lead to something, but I mean, like, a planned, mutual, symmetrical escalation leading to conflict? If that actually happened, maybe. But they have no interest in that. They don't have the fucking consumer economy yet to do that. They need us because it's all part of one system. So they can, they're just going to keep dumping the money in. But where the money gets spent is determined by how the fucking kabuki play goes out and, and, how, and how the fake arguments are construed. Uh. But eventually we will have a dialectical fusion of Chinese communism, Chinese state capitalism, whatever you want to call it, and American neoliberal capitalism. And it's going to be, I think, a fusion. Like, I don't think the, 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 the terror, like I'm talking worst case scenario. I'm not talking, of course, the beautiful, fan, the, the wonderful idea that we all keep in our hearts of, you know, the, the, the respective proletariats of the, of the two biggest economies seizing power and then coming together. You know, the spirit of, uh, of, of, the, of the first international before the fucking, before World War I. Uh, but if that doesn't happen, and there's a negotiation towards some sort of merger on the conditions of like the both sides ruling current ruling classes. I don't think you're going to have the thing that like Matt Stoller's terrified of where it's Chinese style oppression here. I think what it would be would be a synthesis. We would get more uh, uh, technological surveillance and, and more authoritarianism in our lives, but it would not be an imposition of something different. It would be an intensification of existing structures that would be therefore absorbed into the way we uh, process reality. It would be, we, it, we would process it at the level of what we thought freedom was. We would further narrow the aperture of what we considered freedom without even knowing we were doing it. And then we would still feel free. Like we would not all be 1984, like you're, you're a number of shaved head uh, minions and hating it. We would still have our shit. We'd have TikTok. We sure. I mean, that's one way to guarantee we get we keep TikTok for the teens who love it. But it's all gonna come. It would come together. It would come together. Green onions. I've heard people talk about uh, grilling green onions. I might do that. I think I'm grilling on set Friday. Hopefully, if the weather holds. Because uh, it's supposed to get uh, cooler at, at midweek. I'm not sure what my main thing will be, but I think uh, grilled green onions sounds delightful. You get a char going, some olive oil and pepper, yeah. 
not sure yet what I'm going to be, what the main course is going to be. I'm, I've done everything now. No world's left to conquer. I guess I could do, I was thinking of just grilling some chicken wings with like barbecue sauce, like chicken wings and thighs directly onto the, onto the grate. Has anyone done that? I have a, I have a, a, a meat thermometer. So now chicken and pork are all on the, uh, on the agenda. The, the pork worked okay, but I know that uh, I was a little uh, dicey with the, with the heating because it's difficult to maintain temperature when you're just kind of eyeballing it with charcoal. But I think I'm going to try to do a brisket with the snake method, which is just set it and forget it. Uh, which I think if I did that, like a, a long, a whole day long thing, like wake up in the morning, set an alarm to get it going in the in the thing. I might do that later in the summer, but I'm not gonna do that. I need to work up to that one a little bit. I got to first of all, I got to find a good place to get brisket. Yeah, I was thinking maybe get some chicken, chicken pieces and uh, um, marinate them. Yeah, yeah, marinate them. Get some uh, like soy, uh, sesame sauce, sesame oil rather, and then put some uh, barbecue sauce on them. Fennel, yeah, oh, fennel. I've smoked some pork. And Will smoked, did beer can chicken, although that's not technically smoked, I don't think, right? Because it's cooked for the heat of the can. I don't know. Thoughts on garum? I would really like to try some. I'm a big fan of small, soy, salty fish. Love sardines, love anchovies. Uh, eat those babies all day long. Uh, cured fish of all kinds are, are a treat for me. So the idea of like a fermented fish gut that turns into a, a savory sauce, a rich savory sauce, which some have compared to like Vietnamese fish sauce, you've got maybe thicker, you've got me. I'm listening, I'm intrigued. You have my interest, but now you have my attention, so. Uh, but I think there is, like, one place. Isn't there one place in Spain or something that tries to make it, that manufactures it out from ancient recipes? I would like to try it. I don't think I'm going to... I don't think I'm, I'm going to ferment my own fish guts, uh, like, over the weekend anytime soon, though. Oh man, uh, apparently there's some, like there's writing that survives from uh, like late, I think like golden era Roman, like second century AD uh, Rome, where someone's complaining about how all of the, cause you know, every, every generation of Romans was like the decadent fallen away from the most virtuous ancestors. And at one point, one of the one of the things, the charges leveled against that generation, the decadent uh, uh, squanderers of Romulus and Remus's heritage, is that they were spending too much money on garum. Just squandering their cistarces on the fanciest and most, most intensely uh, uh, fermented fish guts. Oh, if anyone's wondering, garum is, uh, it's a condiment kind of, I guess is the closest thing you'd call it, uh, from ancient Roman cuisine. Uh, it was made from fermented fish guts. 
and other things, and it was used as, a, as a, something to apply to like meat and stuff, I think, and, and bread especially. Oh, uh, Spinoza is my man, man. Come on. Pantheism. It's all there. One love, baby. Yeah, it's kind of, apparently it's kind of like fish oil, but it's thicker, I guess, because it's got, it's got guts in it. I don't think it's liquid, but I'm not sure. Apparently, they, uh, there's like a town in Spain that was just making garum. That was their industry. Must have smelled great. But yeah, I know like Worcestershire sauce is similar. I want something thick, though. I want a thick sauce. Like uh, that Szechuan sauce, uh, the Szechuan pepper oil that's got like the, like the, uh, the chunks of stuff in it. Oh, that's the best. That's the best. If your condiment's got chunks, other than ketchup, of course, your condiment should have chunks in it. That's my, uh, that's my take. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Not ketchup or, uh, or mayonnaise. You don't want chunks in either of those, but everything else, give me the chunks. Yeah, but it was also liquid. It was a bunch of different things. But I've never had the real stuff. I'd like to try it. Luktafisk chutney. That's good. I would try that. Damn, now I want to eat like a wheel of bread and some cheese and a bunch of dormice. I have to say, that is one cuisine that does not look appetizing from the modern moment. more movie talk uh, I still haven't seen anything great in a while I finally watched I finally watched Southern Comfort which I had never seen before uh, a Walter Hill movie from the late 70s where a bunch of National Guards guys on maneuvers in Louisiana run afoul of some deep deep swamp Cajuns who get into like a running insurgency against them it's basically bringing the Vietnam War uh, literally home to America, like the same dynamic, uh, just like with the, with the, with the alienation between people who are hypo, excuse me, citizens of the same country. Uh, it's very good. Walter Hill's great. I think Under the Silver Lake is a really fun and good movie. I like it more than It Follows, which was the first director's film, which was much more successful. Uh, I think he's... I mean, it's, it's not perfect, but I think that it's got that mixture of ambition and chops that you love to see from a young director. Uh, and the, clearly, you know, there's a, there's a lot to chew on in that movie, I think, about, about the nature of being like a mediated subject. 
and just what that does to you and like how insidiously you are formed uh, at levels that you'll never be able to understand because they're be below conscious perception uh, and that's that's one thing that I think is really crucial to understand about about under about uh, about epistemology about the acquisition and under of, of knowledge and understanding of the world around you is that is that there is there are so many unknown knowns for any individual person like you know how uh there's one spot in your eye that you actually don't technically see out of. Like, it doesn't receive any information. It's right in the middle. It's where the stalk is. And it gets filled in by everything around it. The lacuna, they call it. Well, everybody, their understanding of the world themselves, uh, every, other people, uh, relig- metaphysics, uh, uh, empirical understanding, rational, all of that, those things are all marred and shot through with blind spots things that have never been encountered therefore couldn't have been thought of that exist which is a lot of shit uh things that uh that you can't engage with clearly because of an unremembered trauma associated with the thing that shaped your relationship to it at at a level that you don't usually access when you're under trying to understand the world and point like examining a specific instance these things are unavoidable so all of us have this lacuna at the center of our understanding of the world but all of them are individuated they're all determined entirely by our biological and physical fixed existence what happened in our lives what happened in our brains both in terms of uh, like experiencing phenomena processing them the the fit the actual physical biological architecture of the brains we have which have different capacities different areas of uh of absorption different ways of absorbing information and maintaining access to it so everyone's lacuna is different which means though the good news is is that they could be overlapped and that is the that is the that's the drive for a world spirit for the for the fulfillment of the world spirit is to achieve a moment where you have fully overlapping lacuna where every consciousness alive and the and the remembered heritage of everyone who ever lived both in 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 the lineage of those who live now and in the built world that they left and the culture they left and everything else all those things are uh all those people are overlapping their understanding with one another and communicating simultaneously and covering all of the holes, covering all of the spots where there's any uh, failure to observe and failure to observe clearly. And at that moment, you have achieved a, you have achieved a species being, or you have uh, you it has come in, it has you have achieved self. You have achieved the, the, the species version of individual total consciousness and, and, uh, and, and enlightened harmony with the universe. The world soul. That's the guy we're talking about. Yeah. And it's by overlapping everyone's lacunae and covering them with each other through cooperation. The only way we'll get there is to destroy the fantasy of individuated ego as the seat of... Uh, of, of, of all meaning. It's the only way. 
Because if we keep, if we're, if if the if the preponderance, if the hegemony in the society remains ego-oriented, uh, 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 conflict-based uh, human interactions, then we will destroy ourselves in the process of trying to grab the last bits of viable uh, capital and, and surplus. You know, I think it's really funny. So Christians, of course, American Christians, I'm, I'm stipulating hegemonic American Protestant Christians, which is the majority of them. Uh, they, they imagine heaven as a place, right? The kingdom of heaven. They're very literal about that. And they think that they're living lives that are going to get them to it sometime in the future, after they die, after the glory. But really, they're trying to make it in the present. They're actually fixated solely on the material reality around them and building it into the closest thing that they can imagine to heaven, which is ease and comfort, which is, which is distance from uh, uh, any kind of unpleasant conflict with others or, or, and certainly any individual humbling or compromise that reduces their, the individual will. Whatever the desires, the, the engine of, 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 of uh, need at the heart of people. Nothing is obstructing that. That's their idea of heaven. A world of unobstructed satiation of desire, which of course, as we know, for the hedonic treadmill is madness. That can't happen. And that is why they become more angry and bitter even as they are successful uh, because it is harder and harder to sustain the fantasy. But I think it's so, it's so perfectly ironic that... So for the, for the American hegemonic Protestant, there is a heaven, it's a place, and hell is a place too. And they understand what that place is like, and they don't want to go there. They're also very happy to see their enemies go there. And the really funny, tragic thing is that the more they're able to see their world made real through exerting their political will at the heart of the empire here at the end of the world, the more likely it is that the world that their children and their children's children will live in will be hell, will be their imagined hell. Total conflict, total savage uh, pain and misery, and god damn it'll be hot. It'll be so fucking hot. When that permafrost melts, what's the difference between the surface of the earth and whatever Dante imagined? People running across hot sands with their heads on backwards. The center of hell is frozen in Dante, yes, but the other parts are hot. There's a big, hot, uh, like, it's like people have to run across hot sand for eternity in one of the levels. I think that was the, uh, I think that was the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was the, the sodomites who had to run backwards to, like, indicate the unnaturalness of their acts. I think that was them. And, of course, there's the Lake of Flames for the wrathful. Where they get hit with the fucking, with the, with the devils with the grappling hooks. Got Alexander the Great down there just boiling away. There's a lot of heat in Dante's hell, okay? The unbaptized, ignorant, pagan purgatory is a hot couch. That's very good. That's obviously like any, any non, uh, 
anybody who's not vibing with like uh, Dante's form of Christianity, and it's certainly I think most modern readers, modern Western readers, whatever you want to say, when you want, where would you want to go in in Dante's place? Do you want to go to heaven? No, I would not want to go to heaven. You sure shit don't want to go to hell. Obviously, it's very bad. I want to go to that. I want to go to that cafe lobby they got, where like Aristotle and Plato and shit. All the unbaptized, virtuous pagans get to just to hang out. Nobody's stabbing them with pitchforks. Nobody's eating their ass with a comically large knife and fork. Uh, nobody is stuck in the inside the butt of a guy with a sombrero, which is apparently something that Hieronymus Bosch thought was going to be in hell. There's a, you aren't being chased by a frog with a giant pair of scissors. You just get to hang out with other brilliant, noble pagans. The conversation's going to be lively. Vibing. It's dude's rock. It's just a hot couch with all those, like, all basically the smartest nerds who hung around before Jesus. I know there's a video game called Dante's Inferno, which is very funny to me. I saw the trailer for it once, and it's, it's, it's Dante, like, in a suit of armor, yelling for Beatrix, like Christian Bale's Batman. Beatrix! I got douche chills, that's all I know. The idea of, like, fighting Dante's... Fighting your way through Dante's hell is... Seems like it would be a really rich video game or even film territory because it's so delightfully baroque it's so catholic it's like you got the descending levels the the the, I, the perfectly fitting punishments for everybody it's like i got all the variety you want and then in the middle of it in the middle of this pit this descending birthday cake pit of different levels of torture most of them involve a lot of them involving flames and fire uh and and demons stabbing you is a giant frozen lake, and in the middle of it is the devil gnawing on Brutus Cassius and Judas in his fucking mouths. It's the cover of a fucking uh, amazing album. Seems like it's underutilized, because, like, you gotta figure, Dante's Inferno, that's public domain. That's like Robin Hood. That's the kind of shit that studios love because it's free. That's free IP that has buy-in with the audience. I'd like to see that. I always thought that was really funny that the three guys like having the worst of it in hell, absolute worst of it, are Brutus, Cassius, and Judas. One, one of it because like, damn, I mean, Julius Caesar, he was an important dude, but like, I mean, come on. I don't even think they were really that close. You know, there, there have been more substantial betrayals in history. And you're going to use two mouths on one guy, one betrayal, basically? It's a little Italiocentric. I would say. Oh, very Renaissance, or early Renaissance. Uh, yes, yes, early Renaissance. Early, whatever. Uh, 1300s. And also, Judas is the holiest apostle. Judas is, should be... Judas, if there is, like, levels in heaven, he should be at the top level. 
He should have the, the, the emperor's package at Caesar's. Like Will Patton was going to get it in uh, Armageddon. The guy, if he hadn't done what he did, he wouldn't have uh, the redemption of mankind. And at the cost of his eternal uh, uh, legacy. Come on. You're going you're gonna to have him get chewed up forever? What the hell? Yeah, you want to talk about real fucking betrayers. Blaise Compare, the fucking guy who, uh, the childhood friend of Thomas Sankara who murdered him and then ruled as a dictator for 30 years uh, after getting a wink and a nod and a sack of cash from Uncle Sam. Pretty, pretty, pretty bad. I would definitely put him in the modern hell mouth, the, the, the devil mouth. I do have a question, though, about this, that suffering. So that's the very center of hell. Those are the three guys getting it. You'd think the worst. But, so you're getting chewed up by Satan for eternity, right? Well, it's cold, right? It's, it's really cold. So one of the punishments is supposed to be that's really freezing. it. But you're in the devil's mouth, which i got to assume is pretty warm. Do they even out and you're kind of toasty? Does it just kind of keep you... You just kind of kind of keep your yourself oriented so you're like half in and half out and you're kind of cool and warm simultaneously yeah I gotta say a lot of the other ones seem worse the boiling liquid shit is really bad the bur- the, the atheists burning in coffins melted coffins for eternity until the second coming and then they just they just die which means their torture doesn't mean anything it's just pure sadism pretty fucked up Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking it would be like a, uh, like a banya, like in Finland. You know, like Satan's mouth is the sauna. The freezing winds outside are the, the, the snowbank or the, or the little pool you go into. And then Satan's teeth are the rods that they hit you with. Like, oh my God, this is great. I'm getting a schwitz. It's also in Finland. Daniel Day-Lewis as John Brown would be good. Yeah, I could see him killing it. I could see him doing it. I don't know. He's, I think Lincoln is sort of like... Lincoln and John Brown are characters, are archetypes in a way of like northern anti-slavery that are so distinct that I kind of... I guess it would be interesting having him play both, but uh, it also might... I fear for a little bit of... Uh, like a rubbing off of one on the other, which I think might be less uh, conducive than having somebody distinctly different. Somebody says, why does Christianity have to be so sadistic? Well, like with a lot of things uh, that have a lot of things in all religions that come from a, you know, I think a deep insight into, you know, the nature of spirit like the metaf- like we're all, all these things are different metaphorical symbolic orders to describe the same feeling of being separated from total awareness and consciousness of others that overlapping lacuna I was talking about the fact that we are separate from it 
that we are unable to breach that separation, or for the most part, it's difficult for us to feel it. It's possible, but it takes a lot of work, and the world makes it hard to do. And in the meantime, this thing that we are all part of, this, this web of being that, is, that truly is all the same thing at a very fundamental level, that we are merely vibrating at too dense a frequency to notice, uh, it scares us and fills us with, with fear and loathing because we turn, they, are, they turn into uh, things that we either desire, uh, which is, of course, to deny their unity, because why would you want something that is you, uh, and, and their hatred, the things that you don't want to experience, the things you don't want to encounter, because they make you feel bad because of the deep wiring, the reptile wiring of our per sense perceptions and our physical body. All religions are dealing with these realities, and God is a, is, is a metaphor, among others, for that, for, for, the, for the best of us, for the entirety of us, not even just the best, for all of us, all of us ever. That's God. And the ways that religions all throughout time and history and different traditions prescribe behavior and per, emanate from an understanding of how to best reach communion with that eternal heaven in other words what what way of living what what value system will make it possible to feel that that transcendence that that evanescent that that the hair the, the hair raising sense of connection that's always there but usually beyond our ability to sense it and we mostly live lives where the conditions of our exploitation and our misery and fear make it hard for us to do that. And we get our wires crossed and we seek pleasure that is actually destroying us and drawing us farther and farther away from our understanding of, of, of our, our true understanding of our place in the universe. Uh, and it causes us to hate others who could be uh, companions in figuring this stuff out. And it's very tragic. Uh, and God is, is and, 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 and like the holy, the, the, the virtuous, the divine, these are all the, 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 the eightfold path. These are all ways of being that make it easier to live that way. And the original notion of God as something that created you in a sense and created all and that you will return to. That is the sense that that's something, if you believe that, life is not as scary as it otherwise would be. And therefore, you're able to live more in harmony with the world around you, less likely to be taken by misunderstanding of, the, of things, driven by reptile urges that, as I said, are beyond your understanding and that often run counter to your actual happiness. And we can, and, and living that way makes the kingdom of heaven possible. As in, when you do die, it is not in fear. It is in rapture. Because you're not, it's not all going black. It's all, the light is not going down. The light is turning up. And it's not that there's anything going to be after that. There's no heaven. There's no fucking gold streets or any of that shit. You're not on a harp. There is just that eternal moment, which with there's, if there's nothing on the other end of it and there's no you anymore to compare anything to, 
it's it's like everyone is essentially a lot of people are like freaked out about the idea of uh, of um, of life, kind of like the morality of life and the question of the afterlife. It's like you're taking a test, and you're worried at the end of it what your grade's going to be and if you pass. But the secret of life is that no one will ever collect these tests. You still have to take the test. Life is the test. But we're all grading each other. There is no teacher. There's no proctor. But that understanding is difficult to put into words for people to get. And so religious traditions arise out of different symbolic orders that, that emerge from the cultures where these ideas uh, are being germinated. And, and for, for a bunch of reasons, we, we ended up in the West with, with one of those versions of, of those things is called Christianity. And the question then that must be answered of, well, if, if, if life is about living in such a way that we can be in harmony with, our mater- with the world around us and ourselves and therefore not fear death, die in a spirit of go to heaven, go to heaven, like literally like ascend the staircase like at the end of Ghost, like actually have that. You have to live a certain way with people for that even to be possible. Otherwise, uh, the, the miscommunications and accumulated bad reverberations of, of, per, of perverse acts and selfish acts that are driven by misaligned uh, uh, interests in our minds, that's why you have to build an architecture of, of uh, prescription. You know, like, you got to do this and you got to do that. Like, thou shalt not and thou shalt. With, because the idea is those things over time will make you live that moment more. Make you live the moment. Make you live mutual. Make you live the thing that they call in Buddhism uh, uh, loving friendliness or loving kindness, which is a universal sense of love, of real love for all other people because you feel that you understand them. You understand that everyone comes from, uh, everyone is the, the product of an environment that they didn't choose. And as such, their actions are contextual. And that you don't, you have to deal with people. So you, you, if people are violent, you have to deal with their violence. But you don't have to do it with hate in your heart because that's what builds, that's what deforms everything. That's why we live, that's the demiurge wrecking everything and turning us, putting us in this, this prison, this, this late capitalist uh, material prison. So this idea of God, this idea of we are, we're, this is God, God is all that is good, and we will we will experience it if we live well. That raises the question: Well, what if you don't live well? What if you don't do that? What if because you've misaligned your selfish your motives, you've you've knocked out the well-being of all and the well-being of you and put them in opposition when they always have to be tacked together? Uh, what happens? And it's, well, because you're not able to access that well of universal understanding and loving friendliness that comes from treating people well and being treated well and in return, you are going to pursue uh, self-destroying hedonism. And even if you, su- you either bash your head against the wall trying to get something where you succeed and you keep succeeding and then you're, you are destroyed by your misery by never being satisfied. Donald Trump is a perfect example of someone like that. And that means that when it's their time to die, they will not see the lights coming up. They will see the lights dimming because all they have is this world. 
All they have are these experiences. That is the sum total of the universe to them. And losing them is losing the universe. And so that is why hell is, ap is, is separation from God. At the end of the day, that's all it, all, all it is. Theologically, hell is separation from God. But it's one thing to have a theological concept. It's another to build it into a cultural, reified, reproducing con idea, a narrative. And all of a sudden, because now you're working with the crooked timber of humanity, even though they're assimilating your religion or the religion that's being created, uh, not by any one person, but by just these overlapping attempts to, to synthesize humanity towards something more divine, more, uh, more redeemable. It's also, it, it, beyond, get, it, get beyond, it's, it gets beyond any one person's control and becomes this thing that's mutate, that's then grafted onto a material base. And that creates material interests that then hollow out over time. It's a theological component. Now we live in a world where Christianity has been fully, first by feudalism, honestly, but then by capitalism, fully hollowed of meaning completely th brittle and, and, and just the shell of it. That's, that's the form of it with no substance is what American, specifically American, but increasingly global religion is. But it starts somewhere. And one of those things that starts it is, what's hell? It's separation from God. Oh, well, what's that? Well, these guys keep doing crimes and they keep fucking with everything. Uh, no, you, it, it sucks, dude. They're like stabbing you in the ass. You're on fire. And then there's, a, there's the, you get people to be afraid of that, but then you get the sick sexual fusion of, uh, of the, the sadism now being triggered by that. The, 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 the frisson released by the libidinal investment now. We're now invested at a sensual level in the idea of heaven, removing us even further from the understanding that these things are ephemeral. Yes, now we, can, we, have, we, have, we have sensualized heaven. And once you've sensualized heaven, you've essentially erased it as a concept. Because a sensual heaven uh, obviates the entire architecture that brings religious uh, spiritual understanding into being. This is a good question. Hey, Matt, do you think that the cartridges get you less high? Yes. It feels like a digital form of getting high. It's like the, it's like the CGI... Uh, gunshots of marijuana it's like a symbolic e version of, of being of uh of marijuana so it, it affects your body at that like lo lower level of an of tissue depth uh, but it's more convenient is the thing you can take it out you can bring it with you uh you don't get shit everywhere. It's, it, you don't have to make it. It's 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 the most convenient way, and that's the way they get you. They get you. They they luxury, and, and not just luxury, just like civilizational uh, 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 indulgence, decadence, whatever you want to call it. the stuff that the reward, the candy of civilization. Like when your chores, are, when you put all your stuff away and your chores are done, like building the pyramids. This is the stuff that we get: the goodies, the luxuries. It's like. Luxury is indulgence and convenience and, uh, and like sense pleasure, like in a, in sort of a dance and American 
like the American dream was, and, and the, 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 the city on the hill that the Puritans tried to build was one of all of those things. But as we have now lived, now that we're living in the era of permanent declining standard of living and austere, secular austerity, uh, the only thing left is convenience because convenience can be, uh, can be profitable through hyper-exploitation. The explosion of, uh, of gig jobs and delivery jobs and shit. Convenience is the last, is the only real conf like facet of luxury that's accessible to anybody but the very ultra-rich. And that's why people lose their shit about uh, anything that infringes on it. Because it's not only their sole source of pleasure, it's their sole sor source of uh, autonomy uh, and sense that they're in control of their lives. is what conveniences they seek. The problem with edibles is they're too unpredictable. Even when I get stuff that's measured out, I never really know what I'm in for. I had a, I, I smoked in a bong this weekend for the first time in long time. That was hilarious. God. Those things rule. Uh, I don't know how if the NBA, the NBA bubble thing is going to work. Uh, it certainly seems like it has a better chance of working than the, the fucking baseball idea, which is already falling apart. Hilarious. Just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Yeah, oh, the entire Marlins now has fucking COVID. And what's this? Oh, no, a, a, Venetian, uh, a Venetian trading uh, carrick just crashed into... Uh, City Field, and now the Mets have bubonic plague. I know. I actually like a bong. It's just such an absurd device, considering the other ways that you smoke that you smoke weed. You know, like a little pipe or a or a, or a blunt or a, or a little little spliff guy just. Well, like they, 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 like it's at the biggest. It kind of looks like it's, it's, it's not that big of a production. This thing's got, it's got water in it. It's, it, it's got a thing you pull up. It's a whole contraption, and it's like, it's, it's so unnecessarily complicated. It's charming. It's like a Rube Goldberg device just to make. Uh, Hey, it's like, weed is fun, but let's wait, make smoking weed more like playing an old-time uh, circus calliope. Uh, I think I have a friend in the chat, someone, uh, someone I know, def just dropped a reference that I don't think anyone else would have known. So hello, if you if uh, if you're really in here, hello. Hello to Jesse. Shout out. Or it might have it might no. I'm sorry. It's probably uh, John Lacant. It was at his apartment. 
Yes, it also does make you feel like more of a degenerate too, which I think you should. Uh, I think all the, the, the move to make weed efficient and, and, and you know, uh, uh, the, this kind of, you know, like uh, the, the applification of weed, it's another one of those things where you're removing friction. You're removing friction from a system that needs it and uh, like, you know, pulling the lungs and maybe a bunch of weird shit on a, on a thing that's shaped like uh, one of one of Dan Aykroyd's Crystal Skull vodka bottles. Thoughts on Albert Camus? Well, Camus can do, but Chartres is Smartra. I gotta say, people have talked, someone just said that they're about to uh, make marijuana decriminalize somewhere, and Biden is resisting, of course, as the old drug warrior he is, calls to add decriminalization or legalization to the platform. But honestly, if we're going to just normalize COVID deaths in the hundreds of thousands and allow for the economy to stagnate somewhere around 20% unemployment for the next two years, they're going to start putting it in the fucking water supply or something. If some, someone says that they know someone who's a weed grower and a, a Biden supporter, if they're, a, uh, if they're an illegal weed grower, I would be pro-Biden for sure. Because uh, you don't want to worry about getting uh, like out-competed in a, in a broader market with, with, more, uh, with more money out there, with more capital to invest. That's dangerous. And then they had the thing like in Oregon where they like set the they set the um, like quotas too high or something, and they just immediately as soon as the uh, state de- uh, legalized, they were they had like a massive pot glut. I don't know if they've even taken care of that pot glut yet. So yeah, if I was like running in a successful operation now in a state that hadn't decriminalized, I would probably want to keep it that way, just out of self interest. All right, uh, one or two more questions tonight. This was a good, good chat. I hope I didn't get too uh, abstract there. I hope it was. I hope it could be followed.
I honestly think that the, someone is, yell, people are hollering about uh, postmodernists in the chat, and I would just like to say that I think the deal with the postmodernists, one is the deal, is that what they were essentially doing was describing the, the, uh, the condition of late capitalism, as in what it did to social order, how it, how it rationalized its control of social life, and how it, it hijacked every asset every aspect of social life and replaced it with a counterfeit version uh, of itself uh, like a fucking virus that they're describing what what being in that phenomenon is and I think that the confusion with them is that that became I don't know all I mean probably not through honestly the fault of a lot of them because you know most people aren't reading this stuff. They're reading abstracts and gists and things get lost that way. But it became like it got a normative uh, frame around it where people were saying this is this is not like life under capitalism. This is life. And I don't think that's true. That's the thing. I, I, I think they were describing a cultural reflection. Of a, of, a, of a material reality or material reconstituting of human social connection that was then reflected at, a, at the level of a cultural firmament that they were, I think pretty accurately most of them, detailing but which they were taking for the whole uh, of the thing when in fact it was the map not the territory. Like I said, I'm sure I haven't read a lot of these motherfuckers not that much of them. It's very difficult to really care about any of it uh, but and I'm sure there might be like caveats in there. They might all have stipulated that this isn't what they were getting at. But I don't think you can look at the way people wield this shit in the current moment and not see that it has been popularized to mean and that for the only thing that matters to us, it has been popularized to mean that this is a that these concepts are uh, in, inextricably linked to all human connections, inextricably linked to all human human potentiality. Let's put it that way. And I dis I disagree. I'll, I'll I'll Howard Ratner right now. I disagree. But that's it. But yeah, I think a lot of the insights about how this shit operates are, are on point. But you start to just you you just you you decide it's the whole world, and I don't think it is. I don't think it is. All right, one more question, then I gotta go. Uh, the next book I'm going to read, this is a good one to end on. So I'm halfway through Reaganland, uh, and I think I might read Blood Meridian again, just because of how I keep thinking about it in relationship to Moby Dick. And reading them almost back to back seems like it would be productive, especially with all the stuff about Gnosticism sticking in my head now. Uh... Because I read it before, but I, I wasn't really up on the Gnostics at that time. And now that I'm more, I'm more aware of this, the traditions and the symbolism, it might be more interesting to read again. But then I think if I can find it among my books in my, my bedroom, I have a, uh, I'll just talk about John Brown is getting me John Brown in the head. So if I can find my copy of Cloud Splitter, I think I'm finally going to read it. I might do that first if I can find it soon. All right, guys. Bye-bye. Keep it sleazy.